Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. It's hard to believe we're coming up on three years of Hallowed Ground. I have a lot of new branding and episodes in the works. Be sure to share your favorite episodes and tell your friends about the pod. In the summer of 2023, I was a museum collection intern at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It was an incredible experience, and today I'm joined by two friends I made in Canton, Ohio. John Kendall is the Vice President of Archives and Exhibits and is a wealth of football knowledge. His office at the Hall is in the Ralph Wilson Jr. Pro Football Research and Preservation Center, an expansive archive of two-dimensional items including programs, media guides, photographs, and documents. I'm also joined by a fellow interviewer for the first time on the podcast, my friend Caitlin Cooney. We work together as interns in the Hall's Collections Department. Caitlin is also a Museum Studies grad student over at Johns Hopkins. I appreciate both John and Caitlin for joining me. Instead of an overtime segment this week, watch for an upcoming bonus episode. John will share more about incredible historical documents of the Hall of Fame. Let's get to our conversation. Today on Hallowed Ground, I'm speaking with two people that I met this summer while interning at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Uh, my friend Caitlin Cooney worked with me in the collections department. She is a museum studies grad student at Johns Hopkins University. Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? Good. Thanks for doing this with me. And we're both talking to John Kendall today. John is with the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton and is the VP of Archives and Exhibits. So we worked with John quite a bit over the summer and Thanks for taking the time today, John. Absolutely. So good to see both of you. I continually sing your praises. I, I don't think that we would have accomplished what we were able to accomplish this summer with, without uh, the help that, that you two provided. I, I think our internship program is, is one of the best in the country. I'll, I'll continue to back that. Uh, and, and what makes it so great is the talent that, that comes here. And hopefully we give and gave you both quality real-life work experience but at the end of the day, what you guys uh, gave back to us was, um, you know, tremendous, and, and can't thank you enough for for all your hard work and you know what you ultimately provided the team, and not only your knowledge, but but uh, your your uh, work ethic, you know, really made for a great summer for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Thanks, John. That's very kind. I mean, I know I I enjoyed it, and it was just such a great work experience. I would love to start with, you grew up in Canton, I know, and where did your love of football begin? Oh, that's, uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> no, I, I, it's a great question, and and I always feel a little awkward talking about myself in, in this way, but you know, I think for, for this purpose, it, it, it is kind of relevant, just in the sense that you know, being born and raised in Canton, you know, kind of in the shadows of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you always knew what an asset this was to our community, but, you know, I had two older brothers who both were into sports. So I naturally just had this competitive edge when I was born and, and started competing with them at an early age, uh, not very successfully, uh, to start, but, uh, certainly it wasn't just in football. It was, you know, baseball, basketball, football came along. My dad was always one of these guys that didn't want us playing, organized tackle football until we were in high school but for some reason he let us beat the crap out of each other in the backyard without any pads on or, or anything like that so um, certainly had my fair share of uh, injuries playing tackle football in the backyard with my brothers and their friends but but really that's where that's where the, the love first started you know just 
playing all different sports and loving the aspect of team sports and, and what that would ultimately mean uh, for me as I move through my professional career. You know, it, it, it does take everybody and you've got, you're working with different personalities, different skill sets. And, and at the end of the day, you're, you're sacrificing a little of yourself for the betterment of the team. So, so all of those things played into my love of sports. You know, football in particular was something that I always loved the history of the game. And I don't know if that that came from growing up in Canton, where there's so much, everything is so football centric. Uh, and knowing that the Pro Football Hall of Fame was here in my backyard. You know, I remember going on a field trip. I, I went to Canton City Schools and as a fifth grader, every Canton City School uh, student would do a tour at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And so I, I remember uh, vividly going through uh, and touring the Pro Football Hall of Fame in fifth grade, having a project later on down the school year of a particular famous person uh, that you would, I guess, like to meet or want to write about. And so I researched Jim Thorpe. Uh, Jim Thorpe was a, a legend here, uh, not only played for the Canton Bulldogs starting in 1915, but uh, became the, the NFL's first commissioner or president uh, back in 1920 and uh, is a pro football hall of famer in the class of 1963. So from that standpoint, I, I jumped on the opportunity to, to research and write about Jim Thorpe. And then my bio or, or, or my paper was chosen to be read over the loudspeaker in school. So I got to read that uh, out loud to my classmates. But no, I think that's where my, my love affair started with with football. And, you know, I, I think at that early age, you know, maybe it wasn't quite developed yet, but I started to realize that I could mirror my academic work with what I loved. And I always found that I was able to do a better job at whatever I was researching or writing about or, or working on if, if I had that passion behind what I was doing. And so you know, I still don't know uh, in fifth grade whether I actually thought like, oh, getting a job at the Pro Football Hall of Fame would be so cool. But certainly as I developed and you know, I went through middle school and, and high school, it really became something where I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. But I knew that whatever I did, I wanted to marry that with what something that I was passionate about. Yeah, you were doing public history in the fifth grade and like reading your... <laughs> Um, paper over the loudspeaker and that continues now. So I was going to ask you, like, how did that transition happen from just kind of growing up in Canton to, oh, I can maybe work there. And you got into that a little bit, but then how did you end up merging your academic training, like in college and then starting out at the football hall of fame? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. As I graduated high school, I, I really didn't, it wasn't like, oh, I want to definitely work at a museum or I definitely want to work at the pro football hall of fame. I think at that point, I knew I loved history and I liked a variety of different types of history, you know, World War II, that a little bit, but I certainly loved like the 1920s era. The Civil War was something I was really into for a while. But I think when I got into college, I, I was really looking more at being a, an educator. So I started taking some education courses and I realized pretty quickly uh, as I was taking the, the education courses that they were actually preparing me more to be an educator than actually the course material. And I was kind of like, well, I really want to learn the, the material first 
And, and then if I still want to be a teacher, I'll go back and learn the psychology of being a, an educator. Or maybe I'll, I always thought I would get a master's degree. So I thought, well, I could get a master's in education after I get a, uh, my undergrad in history. So I kind of switched courses in college and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to learn the subject matter. Uh, and so I was a history major, English minor. And so as I started to get towards my senior year, I thought, oh man, I still don't really have a, a direction of where I want to, where, what I want to do after I graduate. And I was probably a little late to the game in terms of internship. But as I got towards the end of my senior year, I was like, you know, I had a, a professor who I was really close with. I, it was one of the things that originally I went to Wittenberg University near Dayton, Ohio, and had some family issues. My dad had gotten laid off. It was a, a pretty expensive private school. and I, I didn't have the funds to go back after my freshman year. So I transitioned to a, a community college up here in Canton. And uh, it was probably one of the best things that happened to me at the time. I thought, it, you know, I was devastated. But what it really allowed me to do was refocus on my schoolwork and not so much the social aspect of being away at college, but really, you know, what do I want to do? What do I want to learn? And more importantly, I connected better with my professors. You know, I spent extra time after class getting to know them, talking to them, and, and they really opened up a lot of doors for me in the community. And I had one professor, Dr. Heafy, a history teacher, who really started to talk to me about internships. She said, hey, you know, I, I've, I get letters every once in a while about internships at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You know, I think that could be right up your alley. And I thought, oh, that would be great. Our internship program at that time was not as sophisticated as what you uh, both went through. <laughs> it was a little bit more who you knew and, and could you get a foot in the door. And I had interviewed for a position in the what we called the AIC at the time, Archives and Information Center. But I was going to school still full time. I was working full time and I was trying to squeeze in an internship. And so they wanted a at the time, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame was looking for a full time intern unpaid and no stipend or anything. And I, I thought, I just don't know if I can pull that off right now. I was lucky though, because our education department was trying to expand at that time. And uh, they said, you know, we don't have a full-time position available there, but if you wanted to come in and intern on a part-time basis, we could use you there. So that got my foot in the door. And within that part-time internship over the summer of 2005, I fell in love with not just the work that I was doing here, but the people, the organization. And so my goal was, how do I make it impossible for them to kick me out the door? <laughs> and that was kind of my mission from you know, the time my internship ended after enshrinement week in, in August of 2005. I really just kept finding little projects that I needed to clean up. You know, and in between work and school, I'd say, hey, I have a, a couple of hours. Can I come in and and work on this. I'll stay out of your hair. I won't bother you. And so I just kind of kept my face uh, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I kept kind of working on a few things here and there. And then uh, at the end of that year, so December of 2005, I got a call and said, hey, we're looking to expand our education team to two people. And would you be interested in applying? And uh, I jumped at that opportunity. And so 
kind of got my foot in the door that way uh, in the education department, you know, booking school groups to come in and tour and then actually giving the tours uh, to those students. That was kind of my role at the time. Cool. Yeah, that was almost 20 years ago now. And <laughs> uh, your role has expanded since then. And it was just so fascinating to work there and see all the different components of the Hall of Fame over the summer. I do have one question. You mentioned how you wanted to be an educator and like knowing the material you grew up learning all about football and obviously like your knowledge has expanded since then do you think you get to play an educator role now or has it completely shifted that's a great question it, it really um no I think I do get to play that role a little bit you know I it, it's interesting that the type of people that I get to educate now is is completely different where you know I kind of envision you know school students younger demographic you know just yesterday I had I think 13 Ohio senators uh, that I toured through the museum and then back into the archives. And it's the same principle. Um, they're still learning about stuff. They had no idea whether it be the process that we go through in terms of uh, acquisition and then the rehousing and uh, organizing and cataloging the different collections that we're bringing in, or whether it's just football history itself. You know, there, there's a lot of opportunities out there for uh, me to to educate. And sometimes I don't even, you know, it's just information that I know and, and you know, things that I'm passionate about. So I talk about it, but I, I do see that people are learning from it. Yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely a correlation there. And, and I think, you know, just today I, I saw uh, Nathan Martin, who's part of our education team. He had a group of maybe six or seven college students that he was standing outside the reading room uh, talking with. And I knew I had a little bit of time before our, our interview started. And so I popped my head out and said, do you guys want to come in? And I mean, if you're talking about the archives, I can show you around a little bit. And so having the opportunity to, to share what I know about this facility and what I know about the items in, in the archives uh, with them, you know, I, I don't think they anticipated having that opportunity today, but, you know, I, I thought that was valuable and, and I, hopefully they, they walked away going, oh, my goodness, you know, I can't believe I got to do that today. So, uh, yeah, I, I do think that there's a lot of things that I learned, you know, even being in the education department and touring students around and, and how to present the material that we have in the museum, uh, whether it's to a fifth grader or whether it's to an Ohio senator. Uh, it, it's all pretty much the same in my mind of, of how you approach it. Definitely. that Yeah, that was a great. Great way to frame it for sure. And related to that, like, why is it so important to preserve football history? Because it's it's not like being a doctor or saving the world in another way. It's this game that people play, but it's so prominent. And it's just at the end, it's a game, but it means so much to so many people. And so why is that so important to preserve? I think you hit it hit it on the head there saying that it, it does end up meaning so much to so many people. And, you know, I, I do find it funny sometimes the way that we as Pro Football Hall of Fame Museum employees look at the artifacts and documents that come in and how we handle them, you know, when they enter our, our facility and, and we process them, uh, we look at them as, as pieces of art, um, artifacts. And so the way that we handle them is so much different, but, you know, we'll get, I, I try not to look at, you know, social media posts uh, of things that I'm, you know, featured in, because uh, I don't really want to read all the, <laughs> the comments and the naysayers or whatever, what have you. But, you know, I, I will see every once in a while, 
things come up about, you know, us handling these jerseys with gloves and, and uh, so on. And it's like, Oh, you know, this guy just got done sweating for four hours in this, this Jersey. And, you know, there's mud and grass stains all over it. And then you're over here with white gloves handling it. And, you know, from my perspective, it's, it's not about the look, it's about making sure that these items are preserved for future generations. And Ken Riley, Pro Football Hall of Famer class of 2023, was elected posthumously. Uh, we were doing a ring ceremony down in Cincinnati for his family. So I transported the bust, the pedestal, and, and we set up a, an exhibit with their three Hall of Famers, Paul Brown, Anthony Munoz, and now Ken Riley. And it, it is an education process because a lot of the clubs, while they're getting better, you know, they still look at these uniforms and, and these artifacts, you know, in, in our mind as, you know, well, we, we lay out jerseys every single day, you know, in, in the locker room and, you know, we're pulling them and we're throwing them in the washing machine and getting them ready for the next week. But, you know, I, I, I take that as an opportunity um, to, to then educate, you know, why we handle them the way that we do and, and things. And so going back to your initial question, I know I get off topic sometimes, but, you know, about why it's so important. I, like I said, I, I think you hit it on the head is it, it's not just so important to so many people. I do think that there's also this aspect of there are so many connections between football history and American society. And sometimes, you know, the things that are going on in society at the time, like the pandemic, uh, you know, how did the NFL navigate the pandemic? 9-11, you know, there, there's some of these societal issues or cultural issues or things that come along that, you know, you can look back to the National Football League and, and the clubs and, and how they handled things or, or what was going on in football at the time and how that impacted society. So society's impact on the game, the game's impact on society. I think there's a, a lot to learn uh, there. And, and then going back to, to what I was saying, just about the team sport aspect of football. Um, you have 50 plus members on a team. Uh, so different uh, economic backgrounds, races, religions, but at the end of the day, they put all that aside. They're on that team for one purpose, and that's to help that team win football games. And I think that there's a lot of correlation between that and, and life or any business for that matter. I mean, at the Hall of Fame now, we're at 80 plus employees, different walks of life. But at the end of the day, we're here to serve our mission, which is to honor the greatest of the game, preserve its history, promote its values and celebrate excellence together. So you know, there, there's so many aspects of that as you start to research the game and the players uh, that translate to other aspects of life. For sure. That's what I love about sports, too, that relationship to society and how that kind of informs both ways um, back and forth. So Caitlin asked this question when we were kind of preparing this together, and I think it's a good one. So how do you balance the need to provide access to the collections and their info versus like the amount of physical space that it takes? I know the Hall of Fame has expanded several times and there's just so much stuff, but then how do you maintain the access to it? Yes. Also, I know you're so excited about like your digital initiatives and I love hearing about it because I think it's so cool. And if you want to talk about it, I want to hear it. And so does Andrew. I'm speaking for him. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with, you know, it, it sounds to me like the first part of that question is kind of the space limitations in the exhibits themselves. You know, I've been in the role of overseeing our exhibits now just for a little over a year. So I'm still kind of learning and, and 
kind of getting my my feet under me with that aspect. And and I think there's a real opportunity for us to kind of rethink how we're presenting the collection in the museum. You know, when we talk about our collection, you know, it's always we always feel kind of proud when we say, well, we have over 40 million pages of documents, 6 million photographic images in our two-dimensional collection. We have close to 25,000 artifacts uh, in our three-dimensional collection. Um, I used to say that and, and, you know, kind of a feather in our cap, but if we're not making those things accessible to people to view, then what are they doing? I mean, we're preserving them, so that there's that aspect, but but we need to be better at rotating exhibition. And so as we look at the next three to five years here at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, we're really looking at redesigning how we exhibit uh, in the museum. And I want to make sure that we're very modular in our design so that we can continually rotate in artifacts. We have 371 Pro Football Hall of Famers, and we have artifacts or documents related to, to each one of them. So how do we make sure that we're constantly highlighting those individuals as well as the game as a whole or the sport as a whole? And what's also really exciting is that we are chronicling the history of a living sport. You know, it, it's not something, you know, a finite event that happened and is not continually growing. Uh, every day there's new information being developed on the sport. There's new history being made. And I wouldn't say that we're limited in space here at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Obviously we have a finite amount of space within our walls, um, but we're probably close to almost 100,000 square feet of exhibit space. And from that standpoint, it's a large facility. So we have opportunities. Um, for me, it's about looking at the design. Uh, how do we best utilize that space? And, and I do think that as we continue to look at how we develop these exhibits moving forward, we have to think about a consistently rotating exhibition in, in all galleries, not just the temporary exhibit galleries, but in all galleries to make sure that they are uh, easily updated uh, internally. And uh, so, so we're working towards that. The other way that we can provide uh, access to this collection is, is digitization. And we've spent, you know, the last five or six years, it started off as a, as a little seed in my brain kind of rattling around that not only did we need to digitize the collection for preservation purposes, for dissemination purposes, but once we digitized, what could we utilize those assets for? And so, you know, we've really now started to invest heavily in a digital asset management system and taking all of these scanned items like, you know, all of our media guides. So hundreds of media guides from NFL clubs, you know, all 32 NFL clubs produce a media guide that is information that they submit to the media bios on every single player, stat pages, you know, basically all of their history wrapped up in a 700 page book. So great resource of information, you know, scanning and digitizing all of those going back to the 1930s photo collections. Uh, we created back in 2019, it was really a, a three-year initiative, but uh, we launched it in 2019, 
a demographic database of every player that played one NFL regular season snap going back to 1920. So from that standpoint, we have all of these players. How do we connect that demographic information to photos from that player, to the media guides from that uh, media guide bio from that player, to artifacts that they may have donated? And so that started as kind of just a seed in my brain. Like this would be really cool, not knowing the amount of work, the you know whether it was even feasible. And so just recently, we sat down. And we were playing with the digital asset management system. And you know, we've got a company that's ingesting all of this, this data and, and making these connections. And uh, so it was a, a proud moment for me when I'm looking in that, that digital asset manager. And you know, I see you know, Dan Marino's name and his uh, demographic information. And it's telling me that there's you know, 100 photos connected uh, to that information. There's you know, 60 articles. And, and so it's still in the process of making those connections, but I won't say that I cried, but it was a very emotional moment because it's been five years of kind of planning and and wondering, is this even something that could be done? Uh, and now to see it on a small scale and then working through, okay, well then once we have those connections and we're cleaning that stuff up, the impact that it can have, uh, not only within the Pro Football Hall of Fame's walls, but can we get that information into uh, each NFL stadium? Can we get uh, that information uh, to Centennial Plaza, which is a, a amphitheater in downtown Canton, where we have 11 pylons that have the names of every one of those players uh, on those pylons that we can make that connection. So it's not just a, a name on a, on a plaque, but it's, you know, their stories now are, are being shared as well. So that's very exciting. I think there's a lot of opportunity not just to get our messaging out there and, 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 and share the legacies of these players, but also for access for researchers to, to be able to take a deep dive into our collection and learn about the history of the game and, and those players that make it so great. Yeah, that's a big undertaking. And I know museums are shifting towards that digital accessibility as well. And that's a very needed, very needed thing. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll kind of piggyback off of, of that a little bit. It, it is a fine line. It, it, you know, I, I know that, you know, in this day and age, as a museum, you, you almost need some type of app. You know, we have a, a website, we, we have a, a mobile site, but we, we haven't had a, a museum app. And, and that's something that I know the both of you worked on uh, this summer and, and did an incredible job. And we're getting close to, to getting that launch for visitors, but using the app to, to really highlight different tours throughout the museum. So you can have a different experience each time you come in, you know, and, and you have different options uh, and different ways to, to see the content. Um, so we just got done doing 3D scanning of the items recently. So, you know, the, those turned out really good. And I'm already getting a quote to see, you know, what it will take for us to scan all 371 bronze busts because they, the one that they did a couple of weeks ago turned out really, really well. And I think there's opportunity for us there. So, you know, having that digital archive connected to the app where people can start to take a deep dive into the content that we have, I think um, is exciting. And we don't really know. I mean, one of the things that I'm getting antsy about to get it to market 
is just we don't know how people are going to utilize it. You know, I, I have in my mind what I think people, how people will use it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is how they'll use it. So it's important for us to get it to market to start seeing how people are utilizing it, and then we can pivot and shift from there and make uh, make the the corrections or the updates necessary. There are so many skills involved with museum work, and that's something I appreciate about you, John, and like the field in general is like you have the object handling piece, like archiving, digital technology, you have like the managerial piece, and there's just so much that encompasses your role and just kind of museum work in general. And what do you find to be, I don't know if there's a, the most important skill, but what skill do you like to use the most or kind of what do you find most important in your work? Well, when you rattle off all those different things, it, <laughs> it kind of answered my question for me because I wasn't sure how I was, I was going to answer that when you started, but I think flexibility, uh, adaptability, you know, being able to think on the fly and problem solve. You know, I, I would always say, and this may not be the, the, the best thing to say in, in every industry, but particularly museums, you know, that we, we all have best practices and, and they're there for a very good reason. It's this is what we want to strive to. But as I've grown in the museum industry and I've been around and met with other museum professionals, big, you know, organizations and, and smaller museums as well. There's a lot of realistic practices or funding is always a huge thing. You know, yes, we would love everything in asset-free boxes, asset-free folders, and, you know, labeled correctly and, and all these types of, of, of best practices. And that stuff costs money. You know, the I think the, the CFOs of every museum is going, you know, why are our collection departments spending so much money on boxes? Can't they just get a box from Uline and, you know, pack this stuff up? And no, there, there's a reason why, you know, this is how we preserve it. This is how we make sure that it lasts for future generations. And so, you know, there's economic challenges. There's staffing challenges. There's, from our standpoint, you know, there's so much uh, information flowing in, into the Pro Football Hall of Fame that sometimes it can feel overwhelming. You know, okay, we just got in a collection of you know forty banker boxes worth of materials. It's like, where do you even start? You know, and and so sometimes it's just diving in and and okay, I'm going to start sorting you know one folder at a time. And you know, there's also from our standpoint, you know, different departments utilize the collection differently. Um, whether it be marketing or or sponsorship or the museum store, so uh, a, a lot of a lot of different moving parts. But I think being flexible, being able to adapt and 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 understand, you know, I guess giving yourself a little bit of grace is is not a, always a bad thing. You know, I think we we all tend to hold ourselves to a high standard. Like I said, those best practices, we're always looking at those and kind of kicking ourselves when we don't achieve that in a, in a certain aspect. But I think sometimes you got to take a step back and give yourself some grace and say, you know, we didn't quite hit that mark, but man, you know, the things that we did accomplish or, or you know, how far we got on, on this particular thing, we did a really nice job and we will kind of take it that far. And then the next time we'll, we'll kind of push it over the top and, and, and get to that best practice. Or, you know, next year we'll, we'll make sure that we budget appropriately so that we have, you know, the, 
the funds to to make sure that we we button everything up in terms of storage or, or something along those lines. So, yeah, storage space is another one. I think I would always, you know, whenever I have other museum professionals come in and they see our archive facility, and you know, I, I used to think, oh man, you know, I've got my my certain uh, carriages that are full of clutter, and I've got my you know, I don't feel like I have enough space. Uh, and then, you know, other museum professionals come in and they're just blown away by the organization and how much space we have. And I say, oh, okay, well, maybe we're not, you know, as bad as, as what, you know, we think, or we don't have as much as, as we think, you know, I think from that standpoint, you got to kind of look at it uh, from, from all different angles. John, I'd love for you to talk about your relationship with coach John Madden. That was really interesting to me. Um, just hearing a little bit over the summer and um, just how did you get connected with Coach Madden and then just what was his impact on you? Yeah, uh, well, I think I'll start with, you know, the aspect of kind of growing in this role or growing um, at, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I mean, I mentioned a little bit, you know, starting off in the education department, that not necessarily being my my background, but kind of got my foot in the door. And then a couple of years into that, I, there was a position that came available as a researcher. That was something that was more my background as history major, English minor. So I applied for that position. And because I was able to have that time in the education department and, and meet the people that were here now as, as co-workers and show them my work ethic, show them my passion for, for what I was doing, um, I was able to get that position as a researcher. And that allowed me to start working with the collection more. And as I worked with the collection, I realized there were opportunities to organize and maintain the collection because nobody really had the time to do that. So I, I encourage everybody listening, you know, don't don't be hesitant when you see opportunities there uh, or, or things that aren't being done to jump in and say, how can I help? Or, hey, I, I, I think I have a good idea. And I will, I will caution you, a good idea is, is only an idea. Uh, it's a good idea when it's acted upon. And so there, there's, there was so much opportunity here for growth. So I took that as a, as a, as a challenge. I started working with the collection more. I went back and got a master's in library and information science with a focus on archival studies. And, and that landed me a position as the archivist and then continued to develop and grow. But uh, as it relates to Coach Madden, you know, he's, he's somebody that really taught me a lot and who, who I have a lot of uh, a deep respect for, not just for what he did uh, as a coach or, or as, a, as a broadcaster, but the type of person that he was. He was always willing to, to help and coach. <laughs> but uh, when our Executive Director Joe Horrigan, who was one of my mentors, um, he's he's back at the Hall of Fame now, but he retired uh, back in, I think it was 2018, maybe 2017, 2018. He retired. Ultimately, he's come back now as a senior advisor to our president. Um, great wealth of knowledge. Wonderful historian uh, of the sport. But Coach Madden, when he learned of Joe's retirement, he was really concerned about who was going to pick up that mantle of, you know, the, the historian of, of professional football. And, and I think coach's real concern was with the American football league, you know, the American football league rivaled the NFL from 1960 to 1966. Then they agreed upon a merger that would take place in 1970, but coach was part of that original AFL brotherhood and was really concerned that some of that history 
that has just been kind of enveloped in the National Football League's history would would kind of get lost. And so uh, there there was a, a time when when Coach was uh, worried about you know who's going to pick up that mantle. And I remember getting called into our president at the time, uh, David Baker's office, and uh, Coach Madden was on the phone, and there were you know Joe was in in the office with him, and he was kind of questioning, you know, who would pick up the mantle and, you know, Joe and, and, uh, David were talking about me talking about a few others on staff and, uh, coach kind of had this short little quiz of football history that he <laughs> had come up with. And it was, it was a little, it was a little awkward, a little nerve wracking, but, um, I, I think I, I passed, uh, passed his quiz but in that conversation, uh, we had great dialogue. And, and one of the things that came out of that was, you know, we have Hall of Famer committees for a bunch of different things. And how cool would it be if we kind of had a, a committee of Hall of Famers to, to discuss the history of the game? And so that led to some audio interviews that we were doing. Um, we called them the Guardians of the Game. And we, we would get, you know, 10 or 12 Hall of Famers each month together on a phone call. We would order them lunch. We would have that uh, door dashed or grub hubbed <laughs> to, to their to their house and they would eat lunch and and I would build out historic topics to talk about and just let them let them go, let them discuss those amongst themselves, kind of create that banter amongst the guys. And it really, I think one, we were able to download some history from from some of these uh, more senior Hall of Famers, some of these aging Hall of Famers. Uh, but the other thing that it did that I, I didn't think at the time, or I wasn't really approaching it from this aspect at the time, was it really helped create some camaraderie that maybe had fallen off with the guys too. You know, they were maybe only getting together once a year at enshrinement, and now all of a sudden they're getting together once a month to talk with one another. And it really had an impact during the pandemic when nobody was able to get out of their homes. And now all of a sudden, once a month, uh, these guys are at least able to chat with one another. And, uh, you know, there were some real colorful, really fun conversations that we had, but, um, you know, I would pinch myself because on a weekly basis, coach Madden, you know, all of a sudden I'm in his Rolodex and out of the blue, I'm getting a phone call and, you know, I look at my cell phone and, you know, it's Coach Madden thinking, oh, my gosh, like, this is crazy. And you can't not answer a phone call from Coach Madden. So no matter what I was doing at the time, it was like I was scrambling around to, like, get to a place where I could ultimately answer his call. And, you know, originally, you know, he would he would sit there and, and critique kind of either the topics that I was building or how I was managing the calls with, with the guys. And I, I took that very personally and I was like, man, you know, he, he's calling me, he's like grilling me. And uh, then I just, I realized that, no, that's just him. That's the coach in him. And he wants things to be the best. And so he's really just trying to help me evolve and grow and so we really created the dynamic, um, really helped me grow and evolve. And I'll be forever grateful to him. I, I still pinch myself that we had that kind of relationship uh, towards the end of his life. But uh, it, it really was, um, you know, great learning experience for me. What I loved most and what I learned a lot from Coach was he was genuinely himself in, in every instance. 
you know, whether it be when he was playing, when he was coaching, when he was broadcasting, what you saw on camera uh, when he was broadcasting or doing television, that was who he was. And genuinely a, uh, you know, just a, a, a great person, a caring person, wanted the best for people. And, and through that, uh, him being himself, he brought out the best in people. And so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll forever be grateful to him. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those memories, John. That's really, really special. And just what an absolute legend uh, Coach Madden was. As we wind down here, I want to be respectful of everybody's time. What is your favorite artifact in the museum's collection? Do you have one? Or did Caitlin, do you want to ask something? I like this topic. I think it's really fun because everybody has like very specific things that they like and some and usually you expect it to be like some part of like the team that you favor, but sometimes it's totally like random. And considering how much you work with the collection, I feel like you could pick something so niche or it could just be like the Lombardi. I don't think it is. It could be, but <laughs> I'm excited to answer. This is a question that comes up quite a bit for me. And, and it's always a little bit of a struggle because each one of them has a, a unique story. And, you know, as it relates to a single piece, you know, I always love the story of Otto Graham and, and his number 60. And at the time, you know, in the 1950 uh, season, the NFL kind of started to approach numbers and say, okay, you know, quarterback can't wear the number 60. Quarterback has to wear numbers, you know, between one and 19 and running backs, you know, 20 to 49 or, or something along those lines. And, you know, Otto Graham was a guy that was a great leader in his own right, took the Browns to 10 straight championship games, won seven of those, was known for that number 60. The, the league told him that as a national star, he could keep the number 60. But because everybody else on his team had to switch numbers uh, he said, well, if, if everybody else on the team's got to switch numbers, I'm no different. I'm going to switch numbers. So, you know, instead of just issuing him a new uniform, they ripped the number 60 off, sewed 14 on. And so in our collection, we have a Otto Graham jersey that you still see the outline of the number 60, but number 14 is sewn on. So that's that's kind of a single piece that, that I really love. Caitlin, do you have any last questions? I just wanted to say thank you. I get really excited learning all this stuff. It's really fun to hear you talk about all of it. It's very interesting. And it takes a lot to get me to be quiet for so long. So it's very important information. I'm glad to get the chance to hear it all. Well, I'm glad I didn't put anybody to sleep. Uh, sometimes I know I can get a little long-winded, but I hope that you know, it's something that uh, I always hope, and it's whether I'm giving a tour to uh, high school students, college students, or, you know, Ohio senators, you know, I, I hope a lot of times they won't always remember everything that I said, but I hope that they feel my passion for what I do, because um, that's ultimately what they're going to take away and remember, like, they might not remember my name. They might not remember every detail that I talked about, but they're, they're going to remember, man, that guy at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, he was really passionate about the history and the mission of preserving the legacies of the game and, and these players, coaches, and contributors who helped build it to what it is today. And that passion shines through in this conversation and, and all of them that I've had with you, John. My last question, where can people find the Pro Football Hall of Fame, both in person and online? Yeah, so uh, all of our social channels uh, at ProFootballHOF, our website, ProFootballHOF.com. Uh, that is both, like I said, a, a website, uh, but also a mobile site as well. Um, hopefully, we will here soon have our museum app 
in uh, both Apple and Android uh, stores. Um, and, you know, with that, that, that is, you know, geared towards a museum visit, um, 20 points of interest. There's a, a walking tour that you can take, uh, but also there's uh, deep dives that you can take into our digital archive on that and, and be able to uh, see the depth of information that we have related to every player that play the game. So, you know, those are, those are our main ways, but also, you know, 2121 George Hallis Drive in Canton, Ohio, come visit us and, uh, you know, see what we have on exhibit. It's like I mentioned earlier, it is a living history. Thank you so much, John. This was a, a really fun conversation, and I'm so glad that just we were able to connect over the summer. Just the three of us were, I don't know, it was just so memorable and just really a, a fun experience. And it was fun to reminisce a little bit and just hear from you, John, with your stories and your passion for football. So thank you so much. You can find the Pro Football Hall of Fame online at profootballhof.com or on George Hallis Drive in Canton, Ohio. In the show notes, you can find links to the museum's website and social media pages. Thanks again to John and Caitlin for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Hallowed Ground on your podcast app of choice so you don't miss our next one. Also, leaving a five-star rating and review helps this podcast gain exposure on those various apps. Thanks in advance. Until next time, sports fans.